Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences and the walls of organized religion and the institutional church. Thank you so much for joining us. This is episode number 22 of the podcast, and today we are featuring author, speaker, and storyteller Sean Gladding as our guest. Sean is the author of The Story of God, The Story of Us, and is the host of The Naked Man Podcast. Sean and I had a great time talking about um, community and spiritual exile and connectedness and authenticity and what he calls the big story. And we also spent a little time uh, discussing our favorite English Premier League football clubs. You'll hear a little bit about that at the outset of the podcast. Um, But we had a great time, and I hope you will enjoy this, uh, this conversation as much as Sean and I did. So please join me in welcoming Sean Gladding to Accidental Tomatoes. Um, and that we know in church history that, that, that from the earliest churches, that it was the way they lived their life visibly together that people found compelling. It wasn't their arguments, religious arguments, their doctrinal statements. It was like, those people, they love each other. Well, welcome, everyone. Our guest on this episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast is Sean Gladding, and I'm really excited. For those of you who don't know Sean, I'm I'm excited to introduce you to him and to some of his work. For those of you who do know, Sean is um, a storyteller and an author and speaker and has his hands in a lot of really interesting things. But um, Sean, your passion... um, is and as I was reading on your website, is this idea of helping people see the big story? Um, and so I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to interpret that. <laughs> I'm gonna let you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and you know uh, kind of what your background is and what it is that you mean by the big story. Sure. Well, thanks again, Joe, for the invitation to be on Accidental Tomatoes uh, this morning. It's good to good to have a chat with you. So yes, I'm Sean Gladding, uh, originally from a city called Norwich in England. Uh, grew up there, and my parents still live in the same house that I was brought to when I was born. And uh, all of my family on both sides still live in or around Norwich. There's just myself and one other cousin who have gone further afield. And uh, I uh, very much miss uh, England, miss my family. I was supposed to visit them last month, but of course that became impossible. Mm. Uh, I'm an avid supporter of Norwich City Football Club who set a new Premier League record this season by being relegated from the league for the fifth time. Uh, the kind of records we really want <laughs> <laughs> I as as a Liverpool fan, I will try not to gloat. I know <laughs> you uh, you set us on course. We played you the very first game of the season, and uh, you slid four past us and set us on the way. So oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, congratulations on winning your first title in thirty years. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was kind of a latecomer to to English Premier League football. Actually, my oldest daughter got into it. And, and she's the one that kind of got me addicted to it. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of what got me into it. And it was kind of in the, the waning days of Steven Gerrard's time there. Oh, and I was sure, a yeah. big Steven Gerrard fan. So, yeah. yeah. Legend, legend. 
Have you seen the This Is Football series on Amazon Prime? No, no. You should watch I, that. I did, the, yeah, I should. The, the, the English game episode, was a great The first episode yeah. is about the Liverpool Supporters Club in Rwanda. Um, and it, you know, that whole series, just six episodes, but they're remarkable. If you, you don't have to love, you don't even have to understand soccer uh, because the storytelling is so compelling. Just, just oh, wonderful. Cool. So I, I highly recommend that if you have an Amazon nice, Prime yeah. account. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I grew up in Norwich, spent the first 24 years of my life there. I um, I grew up going to church, even though no one on either side of my family professed any kind of faith. They didn't go to church themselves, but I have three brothers and uh, Sunday mornings could get a bit rowdy. So my parents were quite happy for our friends to take us to the little brethren chapel down the road to get them out of their hair for a few hours. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I grew up in the church um, grew up in a dispensationalist, fundamentalist uh, congregation. Um, Fun times. Prayed to receive Jesus many times out of the sheer fear of the licking flames of hell at my feet. Mm. Um, and uh, slowly over the years began to hear uh, a more expansive gospel than the one that tried to scare me out of hell and into heaven. And very grateful for all the people who continue to shape my understanding of the good news that um, we find in in the Bible. Um, I came to the States uh, almost 30 years ago. I came, uh, my best friend, my lifelong best friend, uh, is actually from the States. I met him when I was 19. And... Uh, he finished college and was doing campus ministry and said, Hey, why don't you come over and do campus ministry with me in Lubbock, Texas? So I got on a plane and flew into Lubbock, Texas, <laughs> uh, which was some pretty significant culture shock that first yeah. week, I will say. Uh, but I actually grew to love, uh, spent seven years there and decided I wanted to go to seminary to get some formal training for my vocation, uh, discovered that you have to have a bachelor's degree before they'll let you do a master's. So I what a system. Up, <laughs> I know, crazy, huh? <laughs> so I ended up getting a bachelor's degree at Texas Tech in um, study of addiction and, uh, and then went to Asbury Seminary here uh, just down the road from Lexington, where I live now, Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, Met my wife there, uh, got involved in an experimental Christian community called Communality uh, that we had a couple of men's houses and a women's house and shared most of our life together, um, meals, uh, making music, hanging out with people on the streets, just a wonderful four years of my life, um, combining that then with classroom uh, education and figuring out what does it mean to be a faithful follower of Jesus and a faithful community of people seeking the, the way of Jesus. Um, from there, I went down to Houston, Texas, where my best friend had planted a church in a very large United Methodist church, uh, Chapelwood United Methodist Church in Houston. Uh, the, the community that he had founded was called Mercy Street. Now, on Saturday nights, uh, it was mostly, um, probably two thirds of the congregation were in recovery from some kind of addiction or another, and the other third uh, we're there for lots of different reasons. Uh, that community is still going strong today, 20 years later. Um, nice. And if it had been anywhere other than Houston, I would I would still be there. But uh, Houston uh, sucked the life out of us. Just so much cement, so huge. 
Yeah. Multiple hurricanes. And uh, <laughs> so amazing people, but we just couldn't do Houston anymore. So we returned to Lexington um, about 11, just over 11 years ago uh, to rejoin communality uh, and then made a home in the East End on the north side of Lexington and uh, have continued to try and figure out in community what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, as we love God. Yeah. Uh, well, we're glad it. to have you sort of yeah. in the Appalachian region here. <laughs> so, I'm not sure if Lexington, I guess it's still technically Appalachian. It is. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, considered so, that. But. Yeah. So, yeah, well, great. I um, I became familiar with your work. We actually met when I was a student at Asbury. You were on campus um, for a chapel service or something. I don't remember exactly what the event was, but we got a chance to meet. And I was I was mostly an online student, so I was only there for like intensives, you know, where you'd go for like a week um, in June or a week in January or three weekends over the course of a mm -hmm. semester. So I, it, it was really serendipitous that I happened to be there at a time when you were there and you were talking about what became your book, The Story of God, The Story of Us, um, which was really, you know, influential in, in my own faith formation and especially in sort of the way that I learned to teach mm -hmm. um, scripture. But uh, and that and that would probably be how a lot of folks would know you would be from that book. But one of the things that really interested me was that it didn't start as a book, did it? No, no. Um, I, uh, when I was at Asbury, uh, I took a class in New Testament theology with Mary Fisher, who's just an amazing biblical theologian, biblical scholar, missiologist, just a wonderful human being. And uh, about halfway through the class, we were still reading the Hebrew Bible, and, uh, and which made very little sense to us initially. <laughs> um, for a New Testament theology class. Uh, but then she assigned uh, one of N.T. Wright's books that had just come out uh, called The Challenge of Jesus. Oh, yeah. And that book really upended my life. Um, yeah. And you know, my paraphrase of that is that, you know, the challenge of Jesus is to understand that he's not the beginning of the story of Christianity, but he's the climax of the story of Israel. Yeah. And so if you don't understand the story of Israel, you won't really understand Jesus and if you don't understand Jesus, then there's no wonder we end up with all the screwy forms of Christianity that we have right. over the years. So that book and Mary's class and mentoring really set me on a different trajectory to my own understanding of scripture. And then that summer, uh, I think it was the third year Matt, uh, Matt was into um, st having started Mercy Street. And he said, hey, you have to do like a supervised ministry for your degree. Why don't you come down? I'll be your supervisor. Uh, we'll get to hang out for the summer. And um, why don't you do our first ever Bible study? You know, so many of these people who are part of Mercy Street either have never been in church or have not been to church for a long time. And the only Bible they've been exposed to is the one that deeply wounded them. Yeah. Um, through, it, through the way it was, the story they were told it was telling and what it said about people like them. Mm. Um, he goes, but I feel like people are ready now to do a Bible study. And so he kind of j half jokingly said, why don't you do the whole Bible in the eight weeks you're here? <laughs> and I said, you know what? I would love to try and do that because of this class that I just took and to see what it would be like to try and tell this big story. I think the Bible's telling in short form so that people don't have to wade through all the the, 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 the reads to get to, you know, the, the, the sort of threads that are running through it. And so, you know, I was writing that story week to week 
Uh, I was in email dialogue with Mary. Um, and I, that very first time, I kind of did it in lecture form, you know, like a typical teaching. Hey, here's some information about this part of the story of the Bible. But it was a fantastic experience. We had 60 or 70 folk on a Wednesday night uh, who would come for that. And then about 20 or so would go to a coffee shop afterwards and we'd hang out until they kicked us out. And it was just a, a, a transformational experience for me. And there was one night um, when one of the, one of the, it was the night when we got to the cross and I decided to show the, the scene of the crucifixion from Zeffirelli's movie, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and after watching that, this guy, I'll call him John, uh, at the coffee shop said, Hey, I need to talk to you. And, uh, and I said, sure. He goes like, now I said, okay. So we sat down and he, he said, are you telling me like this whole thing, this whole thing we've been reading, doing, listening, that this all been getting to, to Jesus. Right. And you're telling me that he, he died for me like crack addict John, you know, like he died for me. I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's like, I am fucking in. <laughs> what, what, have awesome. got, what have I got to do? <laughs> I said, well, I mean, you could sort of, what you've just said to me, you, you could say to Jesus. So he said, all right. So he doesn't, you know, and at that point, I think he had like three months clean, which is the longest he'd ever had. Wow. Um, and he prayed this beautiful prayer. That was just just pouring himself out, what he wanted, what he saw, what he was, you know, didn't know what he was getting into, but he wanted whatever you had. And he, he said, I need a higher power I can trust, and I think it's you. And, you know, so anyway, this is a great prayer. And That's fantastic. He said, now do I do, what do I do? I said, well, you, you go out and you can tell the folks sitting out there. And he, so he went out, and I just watched this group of folk, many of whom would not at all profess any kind of faith, let alone a Christian faith, uh, just get around him and just be so happy for him. And I mean, I, I had my motorcycle and I rode home that, that, that back to the apartment I was staying at that night, like six feet above Memorial drive, just like, this wow. is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to tell this story to people like John. Um, but that was not the best part. The best part was like seven o'clock the next morning, my phone went like the old fashioned by the bed phone <laughs> and I picked it up and it was like, Sean, this is John. What the hell have you done to me? <laughs> what? what? He says, I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay. He's like, I'm at IHOP at wherever it was. Come and meet me. So I went to meet him. I slid into the booth and he was already obviously clearly well down a, a coffee pot. And I said, what's going on? He said, well, you know, last night, what happened? He said, cause you know, when we left, I got in my truck and I was driving home and I was talking to Jesus and I suddenly, I just wanted to use, I just wanted to use so wow. bad. And I, and I said, no, I'm not going to use, you know, Jesus is my higher power. He goes, so I said, I just said, I'm just going to go find a hooker and I'm just going to deal with this compulsion <laughs> like that. And I did. And you know what? I didn't enjoy it and it didn't work. <laughs> so what the hell have you done to me? Oh man, that's amazing. <laughs> and I, I, this is, this is what I said, right? Off the you know, spare of the moment. I said, well, John, that, that's, that's the Holy Spirit. But, but we don't get to that part of the story till next week. <laughs> and, I, and that was really my, like my significant conversion experience, that conversation. I was like, oh, I have always assumed for all kinds of reasons 
that you have to understand everything about yeah. the story to become a Christian. Like you need to intellectually understand and agree with all of these doctrinal abstract propositions in order to make a decision <laughs> for Christ. Yeah. And what I discovered was actually anytime someone's story intersects with the story of God <laughs> in that moment, that's where, that's where the spirit is active in this person's life. And that's what I need to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, and people can join in without understanding all of that. They just jump in at whatever point they're at. Yeah. Um, and that was really where that changed the trajectory of my life. Literally that, that, that morning over coffee at IHOP. I'm like, okay, this is what I want to do. So I came back to Lexington and we were checking in with the community, like how everyone's summer was. And when I told them what I'd done, the group said, hey, why don't you do that for us this fall? Like, why don't you on our gatherings? But man, we don't need any lectures. Like, we don't need, why don't you, like, why don't you try telling it as a story? And so that's when I took those sort of lecture notes and began to, to imagine them as a storytelling. Like, how yeah. would I tell this as a story? And that, that eight-week would then become eventually a 12 weeks introductory Bible study that we did at Mercy Street, you know, two or three times a year. And I've done ever since. Uh, and then IVP wanted to, to publish it as a, as a, as a book. And yeah. they did. Uh, although interestingly enough, the first time it was proposed, I met my editor at one of those um, emerging church gatherings back in the early 2000s. Um, and, I miss uh, the emerging church. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Emerged and then went away, I think. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he, he put it in as a proposal in 2004 and they did not like it. And they they like, oh, this may be the Old Testament part, but maybe we can put it in our Bible study division. I'm like, no, I want people to find this in like the spirituality section of Barnes and Noble. not. So they didn't go anywhere. And then when I came back to Lexington, Dave said, Hey, why don't you, why don't we resubmit that? I think there's an interest in the meta narrative now and storying the gospel. And so we resub, I literally changed the date on the proposal, <laughs> sent it the same thing back. And it was like that number one draft pick that year, apparently. And wow. And yeah. it's, you know, it's done, it's 10 years later. It's, it's in its 12th printing now. It continues to sell well. Uh, and lots of people have, you know, written about the meta narrative and there's great resources online. The Bible project is fantastic yeah. for a visual representation of that. But I still think there's, you know, there's not much out there that are trying to tell the meta narrative as story. And I think that that's why people continue to find it helpful and continue to read it and why I continue to tell it to whoever will listen. Why do you think it is that that kind of narrative approach, narrative interpretation strategy resonates so well, especially around the idea of community building. I think primarily because if I can't find someone in this that I relate to, then I'm just not interested, mm. you know? Um, and I think that's, that's clearly, you know, the challenge of this ongoing cultural moment we're in in this country where people just don't get what the deal is about racism. You know, it's because, you know, because it really doesn't quote unquote impact our life. And so they don't see why. Uh, and so I think that, that, that that's why storytelling is so important. And, you know, if, if people are not in relationship with people whose lives are very different than them, if people are not reading biographies or, or fiction, fictional accounts of people who are not very different from them, then we'll miss so much of what's going on because yeah. we only know what we know, right? And, and I think that 
that in our approach to teaching the Bible, so often the Jesus we present is so inaccessible or so intimidating or so unrelatable that people just don't see themselves as having anything to do with that. And I think the power of storytelling, and, and let's not forget, like the vast majority of scripture is narrative. Yeah. But the problem is so often, especially in the evangelical tradition, is we take those stories and we try to get three points that we want people to know. And what's really important is those points and not the story. Yeah. And, and the beauty, like the thing I find the most compelling about why I should give the scriptures authority in my life is because if I was going to write a sacred book, it wouldn't look anything like the Bible. Like I would clean that stuff up left, right, and center. <laughs> like David, you know. Oh, man. What a mess. Because we encounter these significant figures in history, warts and all. But then when we try and tell their stories, we, you know, we either dismiss the warts or we say, or we, you know, around like, what about the people who are still living with those warts? Like, where are they, where do they have a chance to be part of this? Um, And so that's why I think um, storytelling um, in all all the ways we can do that, you know, podcasting, visually, you know, books, whatever it is, that, that, that if people can find themselves, like if there's something in this story or someone in this story I can relate to, where I can imagine myself like that, oh, that, that's like me, then that, that's how I'm drawn in, whatever yeah. it is. Um, yeah. But if I'm told a story that says the only way you can become like part of this is if you become like me. <laughs> yeah. You know, which is typically what most evangelism has been or as i can't remember who coined the phrase but most of our evangelism is actually evangelism like oh you know, i like we, that yeah. we do harm to people because we we say you know the only way we can accept you is if you change and become like us and yeah. there's nothing in the biblical narrative that suggests that that's what how god interacts with us yeah. <laughs> that god always meets us exactly where we are because that's the only place we can be met um, yeah, it's so much of that we've overlaid with like the Christendom narrative and the colonialist narrative. Yeah. You know, that I think brings us to that point of, you know, you you must have the same experience as me for your experience to be recognized as authentic or whatever. Right, right. Or you can just we'll put all this we'll practice friendship evangelism. I mean, when in the eighties and nineties, like that was the buzzword, right? Friendship evangelism. Which sounded good, like, you know, you, you lead your friends to Christ, but then what you discover is, no, you become friends with people in order to make them Christians, and then once they're Christians, you move on to someone else. Well, that's not yeah. a friendship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a project. <laughs> and who wants to be anyone's project, right? Yeah. Um, and I fear that we still kind of approach things that way. Yeah, I, I, hopefully we're outgrowing it. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, as my dad always used to say, it's a process, not an event, right? Right. No, absolutely. And like, all, and like all stories are, they unfold over time and there are yeah. side narratives. And some of those are really beautiful and some of them are really ugly, but they're part of the story. Yeah. That, you know, one of the things you mentioned in the preface of the book, I was kind of going back through some of the things that I've noted and highlighted over the years, because I've used it for, especially like youth and young adult ministry, because I think the story of God, the story of us is so much more accessible 
just because of the language, right? The storytelling, the the narrative sort of style that kind of gets you away from the intimidating biblical language, maybe that some mm-hmm. people get hung up on. But you, you you mentioned in the preface that we all come to scripture with our own um, prejudices and assumptions that we are largely blind to, and and that maybe this narrative style helps us unmask. Maybe I don't know. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's kind of the way I see that. This this style, this storytelling style, maybe helps us unmask some of our own prejudices and assumptions that we come to it with. I, I think that's part of it. I th- I think primarily it's it's hearing that story with people who aren't like us. Um, you know, my wife has an analogy. You know, she says, you know, scripture is like a landscape. And depending on where I stand in the landscape will determine what I can see. Yeah. Um, and I need to be in the landscape with people who are standing in a different place, who, who have a different perspective than I do, one, so they can help me see more of the landscape. And then two, they can also tell me where I'm standing because that's what I'm usually blind to. That's what I usually can't see. Like I assume that I am the norm, right? Like my perspective yes. is the norm rather than say, no, you have a certain perspective that comes out of all of these things, you know, and another, and now, you know, you look like we put all these different pairs of glasses on to read the scriptures, you know, mm. that, in, that are lend, you know, that, that distort what we're reading. And most of us don't know what those are until we're with other people who can say, man, that, that pair of glasses, that, that's an awful, like an awful lot like this. Like, I think that's where those come from. Um, and then we can begin to recognize that and begin to take those glasses off and say, oh, look, I have a, now it looks differently to me. And it's not like the scripture has changed. Uh, it's, and it's not even necessarily that I have changed. It's just that I recognize, oh, I'm interpreting this through these lenses. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that's why it's so important. What, what, however we read scripture, what, whatever books we use, curriculum, the most transforming experience is to, is to do so with people who are, aren't like us, who have different life experiences, because that for me has been what has been transformative. That's what's shaped and reshaped my understanding of the story over the years far more than most of the books on my shelves. It's literally sitting and reading scripture and hearing people's stories as we read the scripture together that helps me to understand the scripture yeah. in a more expansive, profound, beautiful, and messy way. Right. Yeah. And so, so many of our faith communities do tend to be so homogenous, you know, um, we don't tend to have a lot of diversity within our faith community. So that's personally for me, it's been really important that I read feminist theology and black theology and womanist theology. And I love what you said uh, about how, how those other perspectives help me see where I am. Um, I'm not sure I'd ever really thought of it that way before. Cause I, you know, you're trying to take in how do other people see what they're seeing, but I never really thought about that notion of that really helps me locate myself as well, yeah. which is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just kind of to shift gears a little bit, um, you know, I, I think we can all see that, you know, the institutional church is kind of in a period of change right now. And, and it seems like um, there's there's sort of this movement toward um, kind of the intentional community sort of thing that you've described that places you've been working in um, for, for spiritual grounding and spiritual growth. Why, why do you think it is, I guess, um, and maybe this is too deep of a question, but 
so many people seem to be losing trust in the institutional church, but they still have this really keen interest in the person and the way of Jesus and are trying to find different types of community to explore that in. Uh, sorry, did I miss Was there a question in there? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I tend to get long winded when I, <laughs> I'm trying to explain too many things at once. So we've got, I, I think there's this notion that, that people are losing trust in the institutional church and have been for, mm-hmm. for some time now. But because the Jesus story is still so compelling, I think, I think people still want to connect with that story and want to connect with communities. Sure. Okay. Yeah, people, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. But the institution isn't doing it anymore. So what is it about that kind of intentional community, you know, like, um, like Mercy Street and kind of the things that you've described that, that are so much more attractive maybe? Yeah, I think, um, interestingly enough, Mercy Street really is pretty institutional. Um, and it's, it's, it's so funny to me um, when we, often when we talk about these things, I, we again, we fail to recognize that, you know, I had folk um, in the recovery community who would start, you know, coming to Mercy Street and then they would go and check out like Sunday morning worship just out of curiosity. Uh, and you know, there might, it might be a communion Sunday and there'd be the Eucharistic liturgy and they'd say, Oh gosh, you know, that, all of that, you know, all that just repeating these words and saying the same thing. And, or they would come from a Roman Catholic background, which is obviously heavily liturgical. And they would say, I just, I'm just done with the institution. I'm done with religion. I'm like, man, if I, if I were to, you know, come to your open AA meeting this week, how would it begin? You know, you'd begin with, probably the serenity prayer. Mm. And then you would read the preamble then, which includes the 12 steps. Someone will read the 12 traditions. There'll be a reading from the daily, you know, like, yeah, like there's this rhythm and this ritual to the process of 12 step meetings that is just the same. It just feels different. I said, but that that's, you're doing liturgy. Like you are being formed by those words. You don't even need to go to a meeting to repeat those words because they're so ingrained in you because you yeah. say them every time you sit in that meeting. And those words are literally saving your life. I said, well, for, you know, folk in the church, like the words of the Eucharist literally are saving their life. You know, like that, 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 that re-grounds them in the deeper truth that everything around us is constantly trying to strip away. Um, and so, uh, I think in some ways there's a movement, especially young, younger folk back towards more liturgical traditions, right? Uh, be- because everything else feels like it's up for grabs, but this thing has been around for centuries, you know, like let's ground ourselves in this. Um, but, but again, I think the, the, the danger of that is that if, if that is what, for, if it's only the, the liturgy that forms us, and we are not being formed and embodying that liturgy mm. the rest of the week in community, um, then that's, I think, where clearly the church for 2,000 years has, has struggled. Um, and that we know in church history that, that, that from the earliest churches that it was the way they lived their life visibly together that people found compelling. Yeah, It wasn't their arguments, religious arguments, their doctrinal statements. It was like, those people, they love each other, you know, and I can't remember which Roman historian it was, but they said, we cannot defeat the Christians because we cannot outlove them. Mm. Um, what a powerful statement. Yeah. yeah. And so, and the, I think that that is what has drawn people towards 
more, you know, the more sort of intentional communal forms of Christianity, however they've existed through the centuries. And, you know, monasticism is an intentional Christian community, right? And so, so what we were part of was, I think at the time, it was called the new monasticism. Right, like right. Uh, but, but, but most of those sort of communities were in an urban setting and still are in an urban setting yeah. rather than, you know, in a rural, remote setting. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I think, I think in all of this, I think what people want is a chance to belong to something that, that is uh, rooted and grounded in a more loving way of life. Yeah. Um, and that, that it's visible and is tangible. Um, and that, that reflects, um, what they understand reading the gospels, uh, and maybe their, their vision of what the earliest churches were like and say, Oh, it's this. Um, the challenge is, as I remember very vividly from, uh, a seminar during seminar, uh, during seminary, uh, the, 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 I can't remember who it was, but they said, you know, the trouble with movements and everyone wants to be part of the movement is that at some point you have to teach your children what the movement was about and then they grow up thinking that's the way to be the movement mm. and that's how it becomes institutionalized yeah and the movement yeah. is usually a reaction to something and it's coming up with a new way of being it's coming up with a new way of doing things but the minute you have to then kind of explain that to kids who <laughs> then right get, and that's always stuck with me because that really was our experience with communality like in the beginning most of us were unmarried um, there were a few married couples. Most of us were college students, seminary students, and then a bunch of other folk who just wanted something different. And then slowly over time, as you know, we got married, a lot of us to each other, cause we were spending all of this time. Sure, yeah. Um, and then began to have children that changed the nature one of the community. Um, because we were moving more into sort of shared housing where there would be maybe three families under one roof mm-hmm. or maybe you know, one family would now live by themselves. Um, and it just, that changed the dynamic. Um, and then you had children, then you're like, Oh, are we really going to invite these three guys who stumbled in tonight high or drunk to come home with us and crash on the couch like we used to Yeah. when the little, you know, um, so that dynamic began to change things. Um, and then honestly, uh, we, in the beginning, we, we rented this house on High Street in Lexington and everything we, so much of what we did was centered in there. And that house, there was always activity in it. You know, in the mornings, there were, a group were teaching ESL classes to refugees. Um, we had a counseling service that set up upstairs that a couple of the folks in the community started. Uh, we, we had open meeting space for other people like the raw food group of Lexington would meet a couple of times a month in there. Um, people were using the space. We were using the space. It was just on, you know, always, there was always something going on in there. It was a hub of communal activity. And then w- that was what it was like when we left, when we returned seven years later, you know, the counseling service was still upstairs, but, um, pretty much what was happening in the building was our gathering on Sunday nights uh, and a Wednesday evening sort of get together. Wow. Um, and we all sort of began looking at each other and saying, man, we, we've, we kind of look like most churches now, you know, that yeah. we still have this vibe of being different, 
but most of what we're doing is not here. So why are we still spending a lot of money to rent this space uh, when we could probably borrow space to do the things that require a bigger space to meet? And that's what we did. And what was really interesting was how hard it was for us to leave that, that house. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, Because so many memories in there. You know, and then I realized this is why it's hard for church, regular church folk to think about doing stuff different because why wouldn't I be in this sanctuary where I've been my whole life? Right. Where my kids were baptized, where I got married, where I, my kid, you know. And so even these sort of radical, quote unquote, alternative Christian communities, we, there's still this, the way we occur, it just may look different because it's in a house downtown rather than a church building. But we ended up, kind of the same way in a lot of yeah. ways. Um, and so I think that that, you know, for me, I, as I continue to look at, examine our own life at the moment, like we, we're not engaged um, in the sort of wider, more regular gathering of diverse folk that we used to be. And we have teenagers, you know, whose schedules are really busy and require us, yeah. you know. And so it's not even necessarily a different theological commitment or a different missiological commitment is just, sometimes it's just life stages. Right. The challenge is how do you have, and I think this is where I'm at at the moment in my thinking, how do you have a multi-generational intergenerational community so that the, 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 the movement continues rather than start with 20 and 30 somethings who then get like, right. Like that's, I think that's what makes it for a sustainable, genuine movement of God's people. And, and how, what does that look like now? And those are the questions I'm really interested in wrestling with. And, and what I'm coming, kind of coming to the conclusion, at least in these early stages of ruminating on this is maybe the institutional church is the best place for that to happen. It's just, we have to reimagine how we occur as the institutional church. Yeah. Uh, and, and that there are these, these things like communalities, you know, they are the, the sort of missional outposts that reflect back to us that most people are not going to go join those, but they might show things that we need to see yes. yeah. and figure out how do we do in this context. Right. Um, yeah. I, you know, when I think about like the healthiest churches that I've been around, they are the ones that have, really strong intergenerational relationships. They have really, at least across the age spectrum, they're very diverse. You know, they're not all 70 or, you know, majority 70 somethings or even majority 20 somethings right there. You have a good mix of, of different generations. And those seem to be the institutional churches that seem to still get it and seem to still be making differences in their communities and not just sort of a consumer hub for religious goods and services. Right. And I think the key is that, that it's those, those churches, those faith communities are the ones where what happens on Sunday morning has a lot less weight and importance than that, that shared life yeah, in, in yeah. other ways, because I think that's where we get stuck. Even, you know, the Jesus people of the seventies, you know, some of those communities are still singing some of those songs. <laughs> You know, <laughs> because they're beloved and they shaped them and they were important and wondering why, you know, 20 somethings aren't really interested in coming to 
the gathering. Yeah, it's, because it seems because so humans. contemporary 50 years ago. Right? Right. But, but, it, but it's what was meaningful for us, right? It, I, yeah. And that, that's, that's the challenge. And I think that, that, that how do we, how do we uh, value what we love but not value it to the extent that we're unwilling to, to let it go yeah. for people we love? Yeah. Um, That's, yeah. To make space for, for folk for whom this isn't important, for whom this don't have a connection to this. Um, and that only happens as we continue to empower people coming in for the first time. And that's the trouble for the churches. We just, we don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm not sure that we really even teach good spiritual growth and spiritual maturity so that even as people, begin to get to that age where, you know, I have to let go of my traditions. They don't have the the good spiritual grounding to say that's okay. Right. Right. That's what's necessary, right. you know, because we've allowed people in so many cases to just, you know, to, to kind of paraphrase Paul to continue to, to drink milk instead of really yeah. digging into the good meat of it. Yeah. 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 And because so, so much of what we think of as mission and evangelism, the end of that is to get people into worship on Sunday mornings. Yeah, it's a recruitment and, program. Yeah, yeah, and I, then, you know, I said, you, you, you know, and I just was talking to a church couple here in town a couple of weeks ago who are wrestling with these questions. Um, and I, you know, I said, if if you still think all of this is a means to an end to up the numbers on Sunday morning, so you feel better about being in worship in this big building you built twenty years ago, I said that you're you're missing the plot. Yeah, you know, but yeah. if if you understand that you can, you know, you can ha have more people involved in the life of your church in all these other ways, and that is legitimate. Yeah. Then, then I think you have a, a shot at, at not just going into hospice care twenty years from now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, so I'm not. That's okay. I mean, I get it. Like people have invested their whole life in this way of being, uh, and if it's important for them to end the way they began with then that's okay. Like I'm not yeah. going to knock anyone for doing that. But if you're saying that you want to encourage n new folk and, and see people come to faith, then you have to let go of that. Exactly. Um, yeah. But so stop, you know, choose one or the other, but you can't, you can't keep saying both things. You certainly yeah. can't have both things. Yeah. There was, I was, um, I was listening. I think it was a, one of Richard Rohr's podcasts where he was kind of talking about that notion that the the only way to to allow for the new is to let go of the old. Like there's not space for both. Um, so the only way to do new things is to release some of the old things. And I just I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you have a podcast, and and I don't want to let you go without talking about what you're doing um, called the Naked Man which is certainly one of the more provocative <laughs> podcast titles I've ever heard. So what is the Naked Man podcast all about? Yeah, so obviously that, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat tongue-in-cheek. It's gratuitous clickbait, Sean. We know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although in all fairness, you know, there is a very logical, rational reason for there that. There is. Um, so uh, one of the books that is probably – again, shaped my life and changed how I live uh, is a commentary on the Gospel of Mark uh, by Ched Myers um, called Binding the Strong Man. Mm. And it's a, it's a political reading of the Gospel of Mark. Um, and I, when I read that, 
which is, you know, most people don't read commentaries. <laughs> um, but but I, I found his his work utterly compelling about what 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 is the gospel <laughs> uh and so i you know as i began to try shape my thinking and began to slowly shape my living and our family's living i said how like no so few people are going to pick up this book and read it you know yeah um and is there a way that i can make some of the the, the you know what he's saying accessible uh so that that i can help people you know encounter this way of reading that this particular gospel that 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 they'll be that it will make sense and will be accessible and so you know five or six years ago i started blogging back when people blogged regularly <laughs> um through and i just you know there's that character in the garden of gethsemane who flees naked into the night uh who some you know speculate was mark himself mm-hmm. And so I call that blog series, The Naked Man. I think I wrote for about three years and then kind of ran out of steam because I realized people like myself really weren't reading blogs anymore. Like we had begun to listen to podcasts and, or watch short videos, you know, right. And so I kind of put that project on hold at like chapter six of Mark. And, um, I loved it. I absolutely loved writing it, but there was other things going on. Um, other writing commitments I had. And so I just stopped. Well, then last year I I revisited it a little bit and I thought, Oh, I love these characters. I love, you know, I love rereading what I'd written. And so I thought, man, how could I re-engage with this? And then what if I turned it into a podcast? Like what if I just turned it into a short, you know, those blog posts are about eight to 10 minute episodes. Just put one out once a week. I've got 50 something already scripted. I just need to adapt them for audio rather than visual. And so, yeah, so I began first week in January uh, and I've pretty much put an episode out once a week. I've missed a couple of weeks because uh, now I have a full-time job and just can't squeeze <laughs> right. everything in. Um, but I've really loved doing that. My nephew gave me a 20-minute tutorial on some software to, <laughs> to enable me to produce something that's quality enough to put up. Uh, and, yeah, I've loved re-engaging with, with this material, with these characters. And I hope uh, at the end of this year to have begun to get ahead of myself so I can continue through the whole gospel. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really interesting and compelling. I I hope people will go listen to it because I just really love your approach to it. I've noticed when I sort of, I was one of those kids that was brought up in the church and then wandered away for about, you know, 15 or 20 years and wandered back in. And and part of that wandering back in was, um, a friendship I'd struck up with, Uh, someone who came from a more evangelical tradition than the one I grew up in. But it seemed like at that time, like the gospel of John was the, was the entry point, right. For people who were exploring Christianity for the first time, or were trying to kind of re-engage with it. Um, and, And, you know, there's, there's a lot of existential stuff, you know, that, that comes with reading John. I've noticed lately, and maybe it's just because of the circles I'm running in, but it seems like there's a, trend towards back towards the gospel of Mark more as kind of that entry point for a lot of folks. Um, and maybe that is, maybe it's just because I'm running in more progressive circles that, you know, that read the gospels differently. Um, but I don't know what, what do you think it is about the gospel of Mark though? That's so compelling, especially as like, you know, Christianity 101 sort of material. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I confess, like I, I love the synoptic gospels. You yeah. Know? Um, John feels much more poetic and beautiful, which it is. Yeah. Um, but the synoptic gospels for me are just much more earthy. They, they, they seem to occur in a world in which I can see myself. Um, yeah, and John's yeah. gospel feels quite different than that. It, right. you know, it's beautiful. And, you know, I think it's the reason we have four gospels, like there's lots of ways of telling the story of Jesus. Sure. Right? And, the, yeah. and I'm grateful that the early church recognized that and included at least these four for us. Um, I think the interest in Mark is one, it's short. It's 16 yeah. chapters, right? Um, yeah. And it's dynamic. You know, like Mark's favorite word is immediately. Right, And right, immediately yeah. this happened and immediately that happened. And like, it's it just the, the action just keeps driving forward all the way through. And you're like on the edge of your seat all the time. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? You know, the teaching is not as drawn out as in some, some of the other gospels. Right. You know, in terms of how Mark gave us, you know, Jesus teaching. Um, and so I think that's why, I think that's why people... Um, are drawn I mean, again, why people are drawn to it. Um, but I don't know, cause I don't know everybody. Um, but that's really <laughs> yeah, my yeah. guess. Um, uh, and, and I love, I love that Mark ends on this really non triumphal note, right? Like if you, right. if what we, if you think that it ends at verse eight and not at verse 20, mm-hmm. you know, and they, and the women left and didn't say anyone to any, anything to anyone because they were afraid. <laughs> Yeah. Mic drop. <laughs> Wait, no, that's, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that that, I, I love that. I love that the response to the resurrection is, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, now the other gospels tell us that they went on to go clearly. Right, but the, the, right. the way Mark tells it that ends with that, like, yeah, there should be a place for those of us who are like, I don't know what to do with this this whole idea, you know, so, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, and Mark is really hard on the Pharisees and yeah. the religious scholars. And for those of us who have been on the receiving end of some really bad Bible experiences, I think we relate to the Jesus who confronts, you know, a pharisaical religion. Um, yeah. Where, yeah. And where, I think that, I really do think that resonates with, especially like folks that are the audience for this podcast that we kind of describe as, you know, folks looking for faith outside the fences of the institution who have been through some kind of, you know, spiritual or religious trauma um, and who have, you know, just kind of lost faith and trust in the institution. I think Mark does give you that, like, not so much a stick it to the man, although there is a little bit of that kind of attitude in there. But it, it is, it does feel like a gospel for the rest of us um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Maybe yeah. that's part of why people are using it that way. Um, clearly, you know, I, as I've listened through the episodes of your podcast, you know, you, you, you have this really great gift for creatively telling the story and inventing these characters that don't necessarily appear, you know, in the text itself, but you've done, you know, you've done your research too. you know, the historical research makes it very believable. I wanted to ask you about, um, there was one episode, I think it was episode number 15. It was, uh, the fishers of men episode. And, and towards the end of that, you're talking about how, you know, that whole discipleship paradigm, right. The, the, 
the gathering the fishers of man is really a euphemism that springs from the prophetic tradition mm-hmm. and how that for for the first people to to hear this gospel told and read it um how that would have placed Jesus firmly within that prophetic tradition in Judaism and that's an angle I don't think I had ever really heard or thought about um much before so as we're thinking about maybe a new kind of ecclesiology right what does it mean to see Jesus in that prophetic stream or that prophetic tradition yeah no again Ched Myers his uh, his work I find compelling and that there's you know I grew up in a tradition where it just clearly said Jesus called the disciples to go get more people. Right. Um, But then when you begin, and again, it's when you, when you have a sense of who Jesus is, you overlay that on your reading of the gospel. Right. Right. Um, And if I think all of this is like, Jesus is just, you know, he came to die on the cross for our sins so that God could punish him instead of me then gosh, why am I going to wade through all this other stuff to get to that? You know, yeah, and, and yeah. I think in some ways that's why people don't actually read much of the gospels mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, even in, even in traditional churches where we recite the apostles creed or the Nicene creed, like we go, he was born, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Like did nothing happen between his birth and his death? Like, yeah, it's like we, yeah. there's just nothing in there. And, and so, uh, but what you see is Jesus firmly, I mean, beginning with his cousin John, firmly in the tradition of the prophets, which is not to go out and rail against the whole world, but to say to God's people, Israel, who have the covenant, who have the law, say, why are you not being faithful to this? Yeah. Why will you not live into the promise that I made you? Why will you not keep the covenant? Um, why will you teachers of the law continue to lead people astray? Jesus is the good shepherd because there are bad shepherds. Mm. If we can delve into John for a moment. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, um, and again, I find at this moment where people use sheeple as an insult, like Christians who say, oh, you're I'm like, <laughs> yeah. dude, like, come on. Have you just never read the Bible? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like we're all sheep yeah. unless we're goats. <laughs> right, uh, but that's Matthew, and we're talking about Mark. Um, that I used I, to go to church with this this older woman who her, her favorite saying was, "People are sheep, and sheep are stupid." <laughs> so, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's why we need shepherds. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the question is not, "Are we sheep?" The question is, "Which kind of shepherds do we have, and which kind of shepherds are we following?" Right. Um, and and that's that's that was the critique of the prophets against the kings of Israel, against the priests the priestly class. And that was Jesus critique, you know, um, of the leaders of Israel, they were failing their people. And, and so Jesus comes in, in the, I think firmly in the prophetic tradition, but also, uh, challenging the whole, um, purity, uh, cult centered in the temple. Uh, he sets himself up as the locus of forgiveness Mm-hmm. Um, and all of what he does is to restore people to the community from which they had been excluded yeah. for all kinds of reasons. And that I think is, is, is what the problem was, you know, Jesus was not crucified for telling people to be nice to each other. Exactly. You know, Jesus was not crucified for healing people. And um, he was crucified for not, being allowing himself to be brought to heal by the other rabbis to, to, to 
you know, usurping the, the authority of the temple elite on who can be forgiven and who is clean mm. and who is unclean. Yeah. And by threatening the people with power to determine who gets to profit, to benefit from the structure we have created here. Uh, and Jesus comes in and says, that's right. Like the whole structure is the problem. It's not the way you administer it. Like it's, it, the structure is a problem. That right. is literally what is going to burn to the ground. Yeah. Um, and that's why you get crucified. Um, yes. Yeah. There's a, a long narrative arc that includes all kinds of other reasons for that. But, you know, the, the temple elite conspiring with the Romans um, to have this person put to death is not just about my sins being forgiven. Yeah. You know, that might be the beautiful outcome of that. Um, but, but that the narrative is, is if you're a prophet, we kill the prophets. Yeah. We kill the prophets. And the, and the thing is today, the the church, the gathered community is supposed to be a prophetic witness to those around us so that it doesn't matter who's in power, whether it's in this country, whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans, doesn't matter who the president is, doesn't matter uh, because we are modeling an alternative way of being in the world. We are by our very lives, by the very way we choose to arrange our communal life. We are saying this is problematic, but we're not just going to say it's problematic. We're going to try and embody an alternative. Yeah. We're going to be a prophetic community. And that I think is what draws drew people to the earliest churches. Um, I think if if you I don't know if you've seen the book uh, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. No. Uh, um, oh, Alan Creda. Oh, I anyway, it's called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. That's the one of the best books I've read in the last ten years. Again, it's it's academic, but it's examining you know primary sources on what was it. What was it about the early church um, that finally led to it exploding, you know, in the third and fourth centuries? Yeah. Um, and it was this idea of this patient ferment that they, they literally just took people and said, you, this is how you become a Christian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For three years. And you know what? You can't even attend our worship services. You can't attend the Eucharist. Like. <laughs> <laughs> almost one of the most exclusive, but it was in order to, you know, to shape people in an alternative way of living. Yeah. If they just let people come in who were looking for something, a consumer religion, they knew that would dilute what they had, the, the right. soul force, the moral authority they had. Uh, and I think that that is, remains the absolute key that beginning with the formation of the people of God at Mount Sinai with the handing down of the 10 words, you know, where God says to Moses, you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people from my own possession. And I can just imagine all those people turning, looking at each other and saying, what, us? Like <laughs> yeah. we're, just, we're, just, we're just a bunch of former enslaved individuals and some disgruntled Egyptians who had this bizarre experience. We've just escaped death at the hands of Pharaoh's military. We're out here in the middle of nowhere. Where are we? And we're at this mountain and we're, you're saying we're going to be a kingdom of priests. Well, there's no kings here. There's no yeah. priests here. Like, how are you going to do that? And God says, by entering in the covenant with you. 
And here's what's going to, you know, let's start with these 10 words. How about, how about you become a people by not killing each other? Yeah. By not stealing from each other, by not telling lies about each other, by not cheating on, you know, your neighbor. But how about we just start with that? And then, and then we'll see where it goes from there. Yeah. Uh, and that's, Which are the, the essentials for community, right? Right. That's, that's, like, the that's, that's how you will become a people. That's yeah. how you'll become a people and you will fulfill the covenant I made with Abraham, which is a people who will bless all the other peoples of the world. Um, because they will look at you and say, why don't we live like that? Why don't, why don't we do what they're doing? Why, why are there pharaohs? What, what are these, these, what are the Hebrews, the dusty people? Like, why are they redistributing land? every 50 years so that no one can accumulate too much. So everyone has just enough for what they need. Like that, that, that was the gift, you know, yeah. and it remains the same thing. Like this, these aren't a bunch of rules. Anyway, the, the Sermon on the Mount is not a bunch of rules for us to keep to avoid going to hell. The Sermon on the Mount is this, this is how you form the beloved community yes. by yeah. doing these things. And it has to be visible. Uh, and that's why I think so much of what passes for Christianity in the West is just not visible. Right. It's like we're, we're not modeling an alternative. Um, and the, and I, I point that, I hold that mirror up to myself. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, and that's, I think that kind of speaks to, to kind of the cultural moment we're in now where, you know, we, we do, feel those sands are, and I think we have for maybe, you know, going back to the emergent movement, maybe for the last maybe 15 or 20 years, we've started to feel like there's one of these seminal moments coming about, you know, Phyllis Tickle talks about that, right. that 500 year cycle. The great emergence. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the rummage sale, right. That we have every 500 years or so. And, you know, and I don't know why that 500 years is the cycle, but you can really clearly look historically, even before the Jesus event. Yeah. And see those cycles, even in Israel, are sort of happening on that same kind of regular. But so yeah. it must be something that's baked into our DNA somehow, <laughs> like sociologically. But um, yeah, that's you know, I was I, I had another guest on um, a couple of weeks ago, and we were sort of talking about this. And I know I understand that that terrifies people <laughs> that that this change seems to be happening, and especially people who are very used to being at the center of the social and political conversation um, that they, they seem to feel that slipping away and losing influence and control. But to me, like that's the most exciting time I could possibly live in is when these like things that we're not even going to know how to define them. Right. It's going to be historians who will tell future generations what we did in this time. Right. You know? Right. Um, and I just find that like exhilarating. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the invitation is always say, what is God doing? You know, where do I see the kingdom coming and how do I go be part of that? Yeah. And I think that, again, so often we have sort of equated the church with the kingdom, you know, that we think we are the, the locus of God's activity in the world. And so, you know, and it's revealed in the language we use. Like, we, you know, we talk about we need to extend the kingdom. Mm. You know, we, we need to um, push forward the kingdom. Uh we need to grow the kingdom. But then you read Jesus' words in the Gospels, and it's n nothing like that. It's always passive, right? It's, 
you know, seek the kingdom, enter yeah. the kingdom, receive the kingdom. Like the kingdom is coming wherever God rules, wherever God's reign is, there is by de definition, the kingdom of God. So if you, if you see the revelation of Jesus in the gospels as this is the kingdom of God is among you in your midst, like what is happening right now? This is the kingdom. Where do you see that around you and go church, go join in with that. Where are hungry people being fed? You know, where are the naked being clothed? Where are the, the sick being healed? All kinds of sickness. That, that, that's, that's God's kingdom. Go, go be part of that. Yeah. Uh, and the challenge is we think, but, but those people aren't Christians and you know, they're not doing it in the name of Jesus. And so why don't we have our own feeding program once a month out of our church so we can say we're feeding the hungry Yes, and yeah. ignore what God is already doing in the world and miss the chance to be part of that and be converted ourselves and be saved ourselves, work out our, sal our own salvation with fear and trembling and discover that, that folk who are doing those things are very open to discovering more. Why are you here doing this? Well, let me tell you why I'm here doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, 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 that and we ha that's something we have to, to disillusion ourselves of this idea that we are the kingdom and we just need to extend it and expand it because we're not, Yeah, we, we're invited to be part of what God is doing, which usually means we need to go elsewhere and then come back to our buildings and celebrate it once a week, perhaps. Yeah. And be inspired to continue. Yeah. 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 That feels like a really good place to kind of wrap this conversation up. Um, and I know you're, you're busy and I don't want to keep you much oh. longer, but I, I really appreciate the time you've, um, uh, you've given us here today, Sean, and give, given me a lot to think about. I hope, uh, I hope you're giving our, our listeners a lot to kind of consider and think about, um, as we kind of seek new ways of, of being the people of God, you know, in a, in a rapidly changing world. So, so thanks for being part of it. Is there, um, is there anything you're working on right now that, that you want folks to know about and where can people find you and, and some of the work you're doing? Uh, yeah. So I have a website that is basically a place for people to go learn about me, but I don't, I don't do a whole lot there. <laughs> it's called <laughs> just seangladding.com. My name um, I am, you know, my active project is the Naked Man podcast that Joe's we've talked about. So if you want to check that out, it's available. Most of the major platforms, you can find it. Um, I uh, am working on a, what I think I'm going to call a pilgrimage version of the story of God's story of us, uh, which will revert to a more oral form. So each chapter will be about uh, 20 to 25 minutes, uh, to mm -hmm. hear the story. Um, but, uh, well, the, the, it'll be a pilgrimage cause I'm going to invite people to hear each chapter in a different place where they live. So I've got, you know, 12 sites in Lexington. I'm going to sort of beta test that this fall. Well, I was going to beta test at this fall. I'm not sure what that's going to look like now, yeah. but find some locations that sort of fit the theme of that week. So hearing the story in different places, learning some of the story of the place where you'd live, so that's a project I'm working on that I'm excited about. Um, yeah, that that's great. Well, thanks again for uh, for being for being my guest uh, on this episode, and hopefully we can chat again sometime as some of these projects of yours develop. We'll we'll get a chance to get together again someday. Well, Joe, thank you so much for the invitation. It's delightful uh, talking to you this morning. Great, thanks again. All right, cheers, mate. Uh, you too.
So that's all we have for episode number 22 of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sean and all of the insights and tidbits of wisdom that he had to offer there. As always, you can find Accidental Tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com. And across the social media world, we are at Accidental Tomatoes. Please be sure to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages. That's where you can get the most recent up-to-the-minute updates of all of the really cool things that are going on in our community. If you're looking for me personally, you can find me, Joe Webb, at my website, joewebwrites.com, where I blog every Tuesday about a lot of various matters of faith and culture and where those things intersect. And on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, you can find me at Joe Webb Writes. If you have any suggestions or thoughts or ideas for topics for future podcasts, I would love to hear from you. You can, again, contact us on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I would love to invite you to throw us up a rating and a review on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts on, whether it's iTunes, Apple Music, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. Those ratings and reviews go a long way to helping other people find us and the work we're doing and to connect with our community and participate in the conversation. And if you'd like to support the work that we're doing at Accidental Tomatoes, you can donate through the Patreon platform, where your support helps us to offset some of the expenses that go along with producing content for our community. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn more. And until next time, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. (laughs) 